Luke chapter 18. Not quite as heavy a topic as we took on last Wednesday night when I spoke on divorce. Again, that's online. If you want to hear it, I've had several tell me since last Wednesday night that they went back and listened to it and how helpful it was to actually be able to get an understanding of that very difficult topic. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18. I'll begin with verse 18. We know this story is the story of the rich young ruler. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, and that is God. So immediately in this story, Jesus needs for this young man to have this picture reframed. It's a great question. The fact that the rich young ruler has come with this inquiry is noble. It's honorable that whatever has happened in his life has created this question. He's willing to come and ask Jesus this question. But Jesus really already knowing this young man's heart and having some understanding of what was in front of him because of what God had already revealed to him. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus has to do this for him and he has to do it for us. It would be very unfortunate for anyone here to believe that I had any hand in the greatness of God. It would be very unfortunate if anyone would believe that any of the goodness of God strangely could be assigned to me as pastor. You'd think with Jesus being fully God, never less than God, never more than man in this whole story, you would think if anybody could claim goodness, it would be Jesus. But Jesus is very quick to reframe this question for this young man and say, you can't call me good. If there's any goodness in me, it's coming from my father. It's coming from the one whose identity is goodness. He understood that this rich young ruler was looking for an answer from him, and Jesus had to immediately do what we have to do and redirect the question to the one who can truly answer it. So when the question is goodness, Jesus says, I'm not the good one. There's only one good, and he is my father. Verse 20, he says, Thou knowest the commandments... And please notice as we read these, he's reading off of the last slate, not the first one. Why would he do it? Because the rich young ruler asked this question, what must I do? Not an unreasonable question, but you realize Jesus is answering it by reading off the second slate, the last five of the Ten Commandments. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. So immediately the response of this young man was, if that's what it takes, if that's what this is about, I'm already doing a pretty remarkable job. And the evidence of it is just look at my past. The evidence of who I am today, just look at my past. I have a lady that I teach on Friday mornings. I meet in Lubbock and we meet at one of the Uniteds and sit there in the cafe part. And I teach her. She's become a truly profound and able minister and loves doing it. She was sharing this with me. She goes to several Bible studies. And one of these Bible studies, they were asking you to fill out this form of all the major events of your life. And at the bottom of it, coming out of all these major things, then what's your identity? And so you begin to get these kind of words like, I'm an overcomer, because look at this list, and I'm still here, so I'm an overcomer. That's my identity. And I said, Kathy, whatever you do, don't fill that out. Unless you're going to fill it out 
and demonstrate to someone how incorrect this methodology is. Because none of us are the sum of our past events. If I were to say, okay, you know, I'm a child of divorced parents. I've been diagnosed with this disease. I have had this difficulty. I've had this blessing. And we put a plus sign in between each of those boxes. And then we put an equal sign. And the outcome of that is my identity. And I want to tell you, there is nothing further from the truth. We are not the sum of our past events. We are who we are because God spoke it. And I told her, I said, you're the walking testimony of the fact that this is not a methodology that works. Jan was watching a, a deal on the internet the other day, and I walked in and was watching over her shoulder. And it was, I think she had done a word search on words that hurt. And so I'm watching over her shoulder, and this lady said, we were going through some financial difficulties, and my friend and I are sitting in the car, and my friend says, you know, whatever you do, don't lose this house. This house is your identity. This woman's sitting there saying, surely there's more to me than this. Surely I'm not saddled with that small picture of who I truly am. Jesus is beginning to teach some things here. He's, he, with, with such great wisdom and with such profundity that he's beginning to lay this story out in front of us. Because there should be very little of me standing here before you tonight, that I would look back and say, I am the way that I am because of my past. We understand that our past affects us. But under the power of who Jesus Christ is, that past has now been separated from us. I cannot, under the power of who Jesus is and his transforming reality, I can no longer stand and justify my actions today, my behaviors today, my positions today, on those things that happened to me in my past. And when we do, we are constantly crippled, constantly saddled with that sad reality. Every time somebody came to Jesus, or Jesus came to them, whatever their story was, when someone was blind, and they had this encounter with Jesus, everything from that point allowed them to live as if they had never been blind before. The woman with the issue of blood who touched Jesus' garment. When she was healed, she didn't have to get up going crippled down the street looking for the next doctor, living as if that moment hadn't occurred and still encumbered by the past that she had once suffered. God is a transforming God. The reason that I am and who I am today should be bound in His definition of me, not in the sum total or the situations. And I tell you what, when you watch people continually be crippled, and sit and talk about the things that have happened to them in their past, you just want to take that knife and just cut that past away from them and let them stand and run free for just a moment and see what it's like. But this rationale is heavy and burdensome. And we go on. And he says, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, You just lack one thing. And I'm sure the rich young ruler is thinking, I've done pretty well if I just lack one. But when you actually read this and understand it in the Greek, it's like you lack one, but it's actually the only one. It's everything. And this one is the sum total of everything. Sell all that you have, distribute it unto the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And I want to tell you tonight, don't get lost in this story. Jesus is being very, very clear. Until you can find within yourself, until you can make a decision that no matter what my past looks like, 
whether it be filled with the goodness that this young man is describing or the misery that would just be very easily described as well, no matter what it is, if you're going to step into greatness, if you're going to step into a place to follow me, if you're going to step into the providence that I have established over your life, you have to be able to hit this button and separate your past from your future. That is an absolute requirement, not a maybe. That is an absolute. My mind goes to the different stages when they would launch the space shuttle or when they would launch the Apollo satellites. They would blast off and then all of a sudden, you know, not very many minutes into this liftoff, some big old pieces of equipment would fall off when they were going on, that there would be other lunar modules and other things you realize that that it served its purpose and now they were jettisoned away from it. And Jesus is telling him clearly, there's a button here that you've got to mash that will jettison away your past. If you're not ready to do that, I don't care what church you belong to, I don't care how religious you've ever been, I don't care what you stand on, if you're not willing at this point to lay all of that down so that I can help you pick up those things that are truth, those things that are real, to help you carry those things that are valuable, but until you're willing to hit that button and separate yourself, you will never be able to come and follow me. Especially in deliverance, when the past is so burdensome, deliverance is hitting that button and saying that that stuff back there, that hurt, will never define me again. My identity is not wrapped up. The false identity is totally wrapped up in that, but I will never live under that false identity again. So yes, you hit that button in deliverance and say, it will never touch me again. I will never live blind again. I will never live crippled again. I will never live in bondage again if Jesus has done so great a task to set me free. And he's telling this rich young ruler, you only lack one thing. Separate yourself from that past story. The one you're standing on right now that's making you worthy. The one that you're standing on that's giving you great pride. The one that you're standing on that's giving you great identity. Look at the disciples. When Jesus would come under a few words, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they would lay down those nets. That was their security. That was their life. That was what they knew. That was for the provision for their family. Everything. Familiar, laid down, separated from that past so that they could do one thing. Follow me. And Jesus is saying, you just like that one thing. He couldn't do it. And you know, the sad reality is I don't find many Christians who can. I don't find many Christians who are not still living today under some former bondage that was saddled to them, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, still carrying it today in some way justifying or rationalizing their actions or their behavior based on some way that I was treated way back there. And it's like, how long are you going to carry that dead story? I can remember how Buddy Beavers put it. When the horse dies, take your saddle off of it and quit trying to ride it. You get this picture of how long we're sitting on this dead horse, still identified by the position that we once held, by the title we once had or the problems that we once suffered. And Jesus said, you just lack one thing. And the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful because he was very rich. Some of us hang on to that awful story back there like it was the most precious thing we owned, like it was the most valuable possession that we had. Years ago, I had a lady come into my office. She was carrying a box. It was her first time to come in. We were talking about deliverance, and she was carrying this box. And I said, what's in the box? And she said, well, it's pictures and x-rays and all this stuff. And uh, I said, get it out of my office. Took her quite aback. And she said, I can't tell you my story if I don't have this stuff. 
And I said, that stuff should have been burned a long time ago. And she took it to her car. She, she came back. She was very angry at me. And I told her, I said, let me ask you a question. Who can tell me the greater truth? You telling me the story from that box or the Holy Spirit revealing your story to me? Which one would be more accurate? And she finally said, the Holy Spirit. I said, he's already told me your story. I don't need your box. I said, all I would have to do, if, if you tried to start telling me that, is now I have to start weighing the, weight, the truth of what God's already given me against all this stuff that you're fixing to say. I don't care what's in your box. She'd been carrying that box for over 20 years. It was just her story, wrapped up in a box of all the brokenness and of, of all the hurt. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Please understand, that is not what it sounds like. He's not saying it's hard for wealthy people to enter into the kingdom of God. Except for the fact that whether we're rich in money, whether we're rich in misery, no matter what, we're, what we carry in, in, in richness and abundance, those things are the obstacles that allow us to ever be free to step into what God has intended. Their identity is attached to those riches. It could be money. It could be land. It could be houses. It could be power. But it can also be misery. It can also be the pitifulness of our life that we hold on to as if it were some form of a treasure. So it's anything that we hold as a treasure in our life. He says, until you're willing to turn that loose, to let whatever that treasure is go, whether it be misery to riches, whatever you're holding on to as a treasure, it will always create an obstacle stepping into the kingdom of God. And it's not just because he says it's going to be hard. If you have somebody out there who's telling you the truth to say, you're free. And God's saying to you, I have paid a price so that you can be free. And we ignore that voice to the detriment of ourselves still carrying this burden that we've always carried. All it means is I'm not listening to the voice of God. That's how hard it is. Because the voice of this misery or the voice of these riches is shouting. Even rich in legalism, rich in religion will do the same thing. Most people I know are very rich in religion and they can't let it go to pursue God. They're so steeped in religion. They're so rich in it. And the heritage of it, they can't let it go. In verse 25, it says, For it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He's saying this is how impossible it is. If you're going to hang on to something out here that you hold as a treasure, you'll never be free. The very first step of salvation, the very first things that happen in this message of salvation is that Jesus Christ gave himself to deal with your sin so that you would never have to live under the weight of that sin again. And we put up this banner over our lives, a sinner saved by grace. I would encourage you to never take on that identity. Never take on that identity. That may be a piece of my testimony, but Jesus paid a great price so that I don't have to wear that label of sinner anymore. I'm a saint. And that's the standard under which I should measure my life because if I count myself as a sinner saved by grace and somehow I can almost discount the sin that's in my life. But when I hold it up against the reality of being called a saint because it's what he paid for, that's what he bought, that's what he gave us, then the sin of my life held against the status as a saint no longer measures up. Yeah, I, my past says I was a sinner. I was a sinner saved by grace. But because of such a thorough work of Jesus Christ, he set me free. Why would I ever want to live as, as if I were under bondage again? Under the weight of that sin again? If we're not going to take this very first step of freedom so that I don't have to be encumbered by the pressures and the tediousness of what the world says, this is what you're supposed to be like if you're a Christian. No, I'm not. 
My standard is not set by the world. My standard is not even set by the church. The standard of my life is set by the Holy Spirit. They heard it. They said, who can be saved? Because in that day and time, there was a belief that if you were wealthy, it meant that God loved you. And so this truly rattled them because they thought wealth was such an indication of God's pleasure with you that if God was that pleased with you, then it's like, then if they can't be saved, who can be saved? If rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? Because they're the ones who've been living under the blessing of God. No. A couple of Sunday nights ago, I talked to you about Jesus being the cornerstone from 1 Peter chapter 2. And I realized today in a conversation that I was having with a gentleman from Lubbock that for most of us, squaring our life with Jesus as the cornerstone is not our obstacle. Because most of us, having set Jesus as the cornerstone in our life a long time ago, have now marched away, first year, second year, and now building a building based on that cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And most of us can look from where we're standing and say, my life is relatively true with that cornerstone. But if I take Jesus' name off that cornerstone and I put the Holy Spirit's name there, then all of a sudden my life doesn't true up at all. Because when I look at Jesus, if his cornerstone was the Holy Spirit, then when he's spitting on the ground, making mud, rubbing it in somebody's eyes, that squares with the Holy Spirit. Not just going to church, not just trying to be good, not just trying to avoid evil, not just to try to create the appearance and the faithfulness of church. That won't square up with the Holy Spirit. Most churches, if you put the Holy Spirit in there as a cornerstone of most churches, the activity of the church will not square up with the cornerstone of the Holy Spirit. It's too cautious. It's too safe. It's too planned. It's too scheduled. It's too rigorous. I can tell you, when the Holy Spirit becomes that cornerstone that you're trying to square up with and look at your life, I guarantee the deficits become very, very clear. Why are they so clear? Because we're hanging on to something that will not allow us to step into the freedom of the Holy Spirit's desire for my life. And I told him, I shared a few stories. And the great adventure of the Christian life is to be able to square up our life with the Holy Spirit and accept the reality that some parts of my life are just going to look truly odd and sound truly odd when I square up with the Holy Spirit. I walk into a convenience store and I give the lady $100 because that's what I saw in my mind's eye. Or I walk across Walmart and I swap my card before somebody can pay because the Holy Spirit's giving me that picture. I want to tell you, when we begin to live that life, now we're squaring up with the Holy Spirit because our life will truly look odd to the world. And most of us say, I'll square up with Jesus, I'll square up with the Father, but when when you put the Holy Spirit's name on that cornerstone, there's a great deficit in my life. And again, as I shared this week with someone else, when we stand at the Bema Seat, I wonder how our answer is going to come out. As to why my life doesn't square up with the reality of the Holy Spirit. Well, I went to church, taught my class, and Jesus is saying, that's great, so proud of you. Where's the dynamic of the Holy Spirit? Where's the reality that we saw in Jesus? Jesus' life matched no pattern, had no predictability to it, except for the fact that every time he saw a need, he went to the Father. No two days looked alike. I'm sure no two church services actually went the same way when he was in attendance. Let me do 27. And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, lo, we have left all and followed you. And he said unto them, verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of heaven's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and the worlds to come in life everlasting. 
How do you make a deposit that's going to pay you dividends into eternity? You separate yourself from that past. You jettison away that one thing that you lack. You stand before the Father and say, wherever you take me, I'll go. Wherever you lead me, I'll go. Whatever you ask, I'll do. Because I have one desire, and that's to to find myself pleasing to you. I want my life today to be identified by whatever you've spoken to me today, by that fresh rhema word. I want my life to be identified by your plan, not for me yesterday, but by your plan for me today. That's a different Christian life. Yeah, Jay? As we were talking about the things that are happening to us, not defining us, the Holy Spirit kind of put it to me in a way that I hadn't ever really thought of it before. Some of the things that happen to us that define who we are, but the things that happen through us. Our identity is revealed to us as the Holy Spirit begins to work through our lives. You know, those events that they were having people write down to, def- to determine who they were, the only way that that exercise could ever work is if you were to sit down and begin to write the praise of, you did this through me. And then you did this through me, and you did this. And you'll see in those throughs that God did a common thread. And not to think that we could ever do them, but in our willingness to accept that identity, it sets a foundation of faith to allow him to continue to do that through us. I just want to ask you to do one more thing before we're dismissed. This is a mental exercise. If I had a lot of time and paper and art stuff, I'd have you come up and actually do this. But this has been something that's been interesting to me over the last few days. If I gave you the clay and asked you to sculpt a picture of you with only two figures in it, you're one of them and Jesus is the other, what would the statue look like? You know, if we went into Mardell's, we would see, you know, pictures of Jesus and one of them, this young man slumping and Jesus got him held. There's other pictures, you know, of the footprints in the sand where Jesus is actually carrying. So, you know, those kind of pictures come to our mind. But what do you think your statue would look like? I had this conversation with a man today. He described his as being held like this picture that he's seen in Mardell's. And I said, that's a beautiful picture. But I said, I I want my statue to to testify of how complete the work of salvation has been in me. I don't want it to show me broken. I don't want it to show me in that position. I said, I don't know exactly what it would look like because I said, the first thing is like we were walking down this road together and laughing, just joyfully recognizing that who this guy is and what he's done for me. And then I said, but then I would need somehow to actually create that figure inside this other figure where you recognize you're looking at Jesus, but you're seeing my face. I said, so I don't know, I don't know exactly how to do this. So we had an interesting conversation about what those statues would look like. So I'd ask you to Ponder that. But then I want to ask you to ponder another one. I want to put two figures in this. The second statue, one of them is you, and the second one is the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is also a person. He's described as he. I mean, there's definition. There's not this cloud, that we, this non-entity that we often paint him out to be. What would that statue look like that would actually paint the accurate picture of your relationship with the Holy Spirit? And my suspicion is that most of us it would have to be a very large statue because of how far we are apart. Or that we're looking nervously at him, cautiously at him. My suspicion is that it would be very telling if you could actually pick what your relationship with the Holy Spirit truly is. What would your statue look like? You see, that's what, that's what Jesus is addressing here. 
He just told the rich young ruler, he said, your past has, has defined you. Are you willing to let nothing define you but me? To let me establish your identity? To let me establish your coming and your going? Are you willing to do that? Because if you're not, you can't be my disciple. and You can't follow me. Because I'm fixing to offer you freedom. I want you to take it. But if you're willing to take it, it's going to change your life forever. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth revealed in this story. Simply because, God, it's, we, we kind of hear it tonight from this negative side of a, of a rich young man that, that couldn't let go of his past and the identity that it gave him. We also know, Lord, that throughout the scripture we just read of passage after passage where individuals who had an encounter with you could leave their past behind and walked away totally transformed. And we see it here tonight. We see life after life sitting here in front of us tonight who have absolutely been able to walk away totally transformed, to not be encumbered by their past anymore, to truly be free. I just thank you, Lord, tonight for the powerful witness, the testimony of so many who are absolutely able to walk in freedom tonight, no longer carrying the bonds and the burden. We just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.